Maus. Uh, so that's what we're going to be dealing with today. Uh, next week, I'm sorry, next week, Road to Emmaus. So this week is uh, Resurrection Timeline. Next week is the Road to Emmaus, Luke 24. And the following weeks, we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I think it's a, a powerful chapter. I think it's misunderstood in a lot of places. And we're going to go through the entire chapter. We're going to look at all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is different the way we're doing it this morning. And this is going to be difficult for the coming weeks because we used to, we're used to face-to-face teaching. I can actually see a crowd or uh, at least a couple of nice happy faces that are staying awake as much as possible. But today you get to do something that Pastor Eric well, used to be annoyed with. You get to be pajama Christians. So we're going to, uh, you're going to get your coffee whenever you need to get your coffee. You can uh, get your cereal, whatever you need. You may be watching. We are not face-to-face today. We're f- I am face-to-computer, and you are face-at-the-computer, uh, interacting with what I'm doing or TV, whatever monitor you may be using. Um, but we're going to do strictly Bible study this morning on, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday There will at 9.18 in the morning or somewhere about there. We're going to continue uh, the blog we're going to do uh, with what we call 9.18 with Pastor Eric. So um, we're going to investigate some things on 9.18 and we'll have a little levity. We do some book reports, uh, some reviews and maybe some things you might need and And next weekend, we're going to review a movie that they're going to show on TBN. So you can look at your listing. I'm not announcing it because um, it's up to you if you want to watch it. But we'll talk about it at 9.18 on Monday morning. On Tuesday mornings, I have a uh, pastor uh, corner with, with six other pastors that we're doing on Zoom. And we're going to be recording that and uploading it to Zoom. I mean, uploading it to YouTube so you can follow up and watch it on YouTube. Um, so it's a, it's a really cool thing. A lot of good guys, and we're going to be this week. We're going to be studying some other information on the resurrection. So if when we upload it on Tuesday, you can uh, eavesdrop on s- these seven pastors, maybe eight or nine. We're trying to get a couple more guys on board. So be, be with that. So we're going to have, we're going to open in prayer. I know there's lots of prayer requests out there. I hear you all calling them in to me right now and saying stuff, but um, I want us all lifting each other up in this time. It's difficult. I know it's hard on the parents, the kids. Uh, we used to yell, you know, Johnny, go outside. Now we can't let little Johnny go outside because we don't know what he's going to get. So uh, we have uh, a building of cabin fever, so we're praying for everyone that's involved uh, and praying for all of you that we get through this. I believe it's uh, there will be light at the end of the tunnel in the next two weeks. And we'll be uh, getting different mandates sent down. But for now, we have a wonderful opportunity we can meet like this on on YouTube. So let's pray and we'll go to Bible study because I think it's important for us to see some things that are that are necessary within this. And we're going to go to a main verse this morning that I'm going to use for a bouncing point. So let's let's uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the ability that we can. In this day and age, come together. If this would have happened, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we couldn't have come together. We would have been isolated. Uh, probably would have been a worse outbreak. But, Father, we know that you're a God who is omniscient. You know everything. 
you know what's going on. You have your hand in this. Um, I don't know if you're setting up things for the end. I believe these are all trends that are necessary for the end times. Uh, but, Father, this isn't it. And we have to be a light to shine in the community as we go through things together. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to today. We open these doors back up in the parking lot. Uh, is crowded and there's people talking and, and walking around and hugging and shaking hands. And, Father, I know that's, that's in your plan, uh, how this is going to work out, how this is going to pan out. But, Father, I know that you're a God who cares, a God who oversees, a God who has given us our, your word for us to study together to uh, get some wonderful insights. Again, we thank you for this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. This morning, uh, quickly, um, I'm going to switch over to it in my word search so you can see it too. I'm not going to do this a lot this morning. I'm uh, pr- Prayerfully, you have your Bibles out. So I'm going to try and work on this as best I can. Um, what it says in verse 14, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is in vain. So we, we've got to understand that we're, we're dealing with in the resurrection is... If Christ hasn't been raised, and that's the uh, objection Paul will bring up the people are saying. Now, the people aren't, excuse me, let me say it a different way. The Corinthians aren't saying Christ hasn't been resurrected. They're saying there's no resurrection. But they believe Christ has resurrected, so it's a conundrum in 1 first, in first Corinthians 15. And we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that as we get there. Um, but he says if that's true, if Christ hasn't, uh, if there is no resurrection, therefore Christ hasn't been raised... Uh, our preaching is a vain and so is your faith. And that's where we're going to go because we're going to look at the resurrection today. And not only the impact of it, but how many people right there uh, heard and saw and had some kind of an appearance of Christ. Now, uh, what what I want to go to, and we're, I'm not going to turn to every verse. I'm going to mention them because I want you to be able to turn to some of these verses. I think it's better if you go to them. Uh, so here's here's what Luke chapter 18 verse 30, 31 through 33 Jesus predicts his mistreatment by the Gentiles his death and three days later his resurrection so Jesus predicts that and um, one of the things I'm going to tell you is the disciples did not get it right off the bat they did not uh, did not click to him they didn't get it they had issues with understanding that uh, so. Um, Okay, so let, let me read the verse again, and where we're going with. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. And I'm get, I got a note from my son-in-law, so we're going to try and work on some of the technical flaws that we're dealing with a little bit here this morning, but I think we'll be all right. Um, so, the, the, basically, and not only in Luke 18, but many times Jesus predicted that he must go into Jerusalem and die, and be raised the third day. And we'll, we'll go through those, not this morning, but we're going to go through those in the next coming weeks to show you that. Um, and but, but, the, but the time we get to Luke chapter 24 next week, we'll also see that these words Jesus spoke are recalled to memory by the disciples and by others that Jesus had said he was going to resurrect. Uh, and again, remember in John chapter 11, Jesus calls himself the resurrection and the life. So that's important to see. Now, I'm going to say this. This is a uh, kind of the small print in teaching, a small print when you're dealing with these kind of things, uh, what we call um, 
the resurrection uh, appearances, trying to get all the different information from the four Gospels and come out with a timeline. Uh, I don't believe it's every harmony can be trustworthy. Uh, so when I come up with a harmony, what I believe it is, there's still issues with it because the four Gospels all contain some kind of account. Mark's is very quick, but but the other three Gospels contain an account. You have Acts that refers back to it. You have verses from Paul, especially in 1 Corinthians uh, 1 through 4, that talk about different uh, people that saw it. And um, we, when you talk about all the writings uh, dealing with certain things, each writer is trying to drive at a different point. So therefore, they're bringing out different aspects. And when we read it, we're expecting a chronological view in every gospel. And you can't do that in some of the gospels, especially Matthew, because Matthew's just bringing up points that support whatever he's trying to bring up and teach. Uh, but I am going to say this. When we talk about resurrection, um, one of the things we can say right off the bat is to this day, nobody has discovered the human body of Jesus. There is no body. Uh, there, is, there is an empty tomb. And if you go to Israel today, they'll show you a couple of places that might be, could be, probably is, probably is not the tomb of Jesus. But every tomb they take you to is empty. And and obviously, if you had too many tourists coming in, uh, it would always be empty. But because uh, they don't want to see a dead body, but they have never found the body of Jesus. Uh, his resurrection appearances at the time, at the time when Jesus resurrected, were irrefutable. In other words, nobody said or produced a body. Nobody said uh, this is a hoax. It's not really happened uh, because and everybody to. The person was in agreement with it. When Peter preaches in Acts chapter 3 and 4, he says, uh, you, he's, he's talking about Israel, had, uh, had hands in crucifying their Savior, that he died, and that, he ro- and that God raised him from the dead. Nobody in the crowd said, hey, 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 wait a minute. You're wrong. I, I saw the body. Uh, even when they were different accounts that said they were... Uh, Tell them you moved the, that the disciples moved the body, or that you know that they stole the body. They could never produce a body. Uh, so, and at one point in First Corinthians, it's, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. It says there's 500 witnesses to the resurrection. 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Uh, any account uh, that you look at it, if you had that many witnesses to account, you would say it's irrefutable. He rose again. He, there is. There is a resurrection. Jesus is alive. Um, now, I'm going to say something because inevitably somebody will come up and say, there's not a whole lot of historical information written other than the Gospels about his resurrection. And I will say, you're right. There is limited information about his resurrection uh, and the fact of it or the history of it, which I'm fine with because there's also no uh, historical account written that there was no resurrection. So there are people today that say there's no resurrection and that Jesus didn't resurrect, um, but they're wrong. <laughs> they got issues, and, and more, than, more than anything, their issue is they're not believers. So unbelievers are going to find ways, uh, again, to be blinded, and, and usually it's blind people leading lead the blind in those things. So, 
But here's 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 what we have, and I'm going to give you an example because most apparent problems are in details that have nothing to do with the validity of the resurrection. When we're talking about details that happen after Jesus's resurrection, and they're trying to uh, get all the different appearances and who brought the spices and when the spices were brought and how many angels were there. Um, when we get all those different uh, ancillary incidents, I guess is the best way to say it. Uh, let's put it this way. Uh, I, I'm going to give you an example for myself. It says, Eric brought a gift to the wedding. Then I could say, well, Eric brought two gifts to the wedding. Well, is the focus on the gifts or that Eric attended the wedding? That Eric was there. Um, or we could even say, was there a wedding? Was there a wedding? Um, and did people bring gifts? So all these things are part of the thing, but the, uh, the nuances aren't always uh, that we can grasp because they're given different accounts. And most of the uh, Gospels were written probably 20 to 30 years after the fact. Um, yes, with eyewitness and verbal accounts and and Matthew obviously was a disciple John was a disciple so he was part of those group of guys that were involved in that Mark was probably uh, very close to Luke and Paul and those and was an uh, probably more than likely a friend of the so one of the disciples the original disciples but uh, again uh, these are accounts that were written with good support, because nobody ever contradicted and said, hey, here's the body, we're back to that same thing, here's Jesus, here's where he's laid, um, I don't care what you think and where's, what's going on, he's, this is where he's at. But they couldn't do that. However, here's where I'm going. I believe as we go through this timeline once again, we will see a beautiful consistency of God's word that bears witness to the event that our belief is based upon. See, I have faith in Christ because he died for my sins, and this is what 1 Corinthians 15 says, that he was buried, and then on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. So we need to understand the resurrection. Uh, When skeptics battle with believers over the resurrection account, it's really a no-win situation. They don't have ammo, and we're talking about a faith issue more than a historical issue. I believe they're both involved. And that'll be a conversation we're going to have on Tuesday with the pastor's conf- uh, corner a little bit. Um, but uh, again, as we see this, if they don't want to believe, there's nothing we can do. Uh, and we see that even in the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. Uh, they're looking for harmony to believe the Bible. And as a believer, I come to the Word of God and I treated the Word of God as fully inspired, not really knowing the reason for everything. There's certain things, I don't know if you know this, but there's certain things in the Bible I don't get. There's certain things I'm still learning, and prayerfully you are too. And as I learn, I get to regurgitate it on you a little bit. Um, but, for instance, uh, how were the angels created? I have no idea. God doesn't mention it. It's not talked about. Does that make me less of a believer because God didn't tell me? Does that make me more of a skeptic in God's word because he didn't tell me? How about uh, the origin of Cain's wife? We know God sent Cain uh, out from the family and said, you know, you'll go out to probably the land of Canaan, somewhere in there. Uh, and we know he propagated. Where did he get his wife? Now, I'm assuming 
that it was one of his sisters. Because Adam and Eve had many children, but there's nothing written about it. And when we don't have something written about it, it doesn't make the Word of God less inspired. Uh, uh, We do claim that the writers of Scripture were both inspired and did not conspire together. So I'm I'm saying this. The four writers of the Gospel did not sit down at a round table or with Zoom and have a conference and say, let's come up with a resurrection hoax. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, they, they both looked at an account that happened, they verified their sources, and they wrote it as they saw necessary and put the pieces in that they thought was necessary to drive their account. Uh, we, as we will go through this study and finish it, going through the whole thing today, whether it takes an hour, an hour and a half, so far we're doing good, though. Um, all the accounts may at first seem inconsistent. So if you're reading the Gospels and you decide to sit down and read all the various accounts in Matthew, Mark, just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Mark's is short, I think it's only a couple of verses, basically. Um, and Mark's got issues with the end anyway, which is a whole other conversation at another time. But... Uh, what we see in these accounts, they may seem at first inconsistent. Let's use that word inconsistent. But I've, I, I don't. I want to stay away from the word contrary. I think if we start using the word that they contradict or they're contrary to each other, we miss the uh, emphasis of Scripture. The one problem we first address is that of individuals. Are they then they themselves even in chronological order? Uh, they don't give detailed account of every occurrence. In other words. There's no place in one gospel you'll find a detailed running account of everything that occurred. So you've got to kind of piece them together. Uh, and this itself raises the difficulty in harmony. How do we put where and where? And I've read through I don't know how many different accounts. And they all seem to be a little, a little variable in each thing. Um, but we can get close. And we can get close, and I'll show you the reason we need to get close as we get closer to the walkthrough of what exactly happens in this timeline. For example, not one gospel has the whole account of the illegal trials of Jesus that he went through that night or early morning prior to the crucifixion. So we can't say, we got to take those different trials, those uh, six, I believe, six illegal trials, and we got to put them together and see what's going on in that time frame. Uh, not one of the seven gospels, uh, not one of the, excuse me, not one of the four gospels has all seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. So again, you've got to put those together and harmonize that. Only Matthew gives a strange account of what happened in Matthew 27, verses 51 through 53, that gives an account of the temple uh, veil torn in half from top to bottom, that the earth shook, there was some kind of earthquake, we don't know if it was local or global, uh, rocks were split in half or split up, uh, tombs were opened, and out of the tombs, many of the body of the saints had, who had fallen asleep were raised, coming out of the tombs um, and entering the holy city and appeared to many. Uh, and many believe this went on for three days at least. Um, we don't know. It's kind of an odd account, and we can kind of teach certain things, but there's not a whole lot of theology you're going to get out of that, uh, other than, obviously, the temple curtain torn from top to bottom. God did it. 
That's the picture you get of that. But the most important issue, again, we, we need to remember, is the resurrection of the resurrection of Jesus. It's being true is on the basis of belief that he is who we claim to be, and by his death and resurrection, our sins are dealt with in full. That's what we need to remember. What was accomplished by his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, which we call the good news or the greatest of all news. Um, Again, if he did not, again, I'm going to repeat, if he did not raise from the dead, as Paul has stated, our faith is useless and we're still in our sins and um, we should be spending this, this hour of coronavirus doing something else. Um, but we're not. We're learning the word of God because we want to grow closer to him in this time and because uh, we need that. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Today, many Jews, today, today still, Many Jews await the resurrection of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Shearson, who died in 1994 in New York. At the, first, at, uh, at the time of his death, a Nahum Cohen said this. A Nahum Cohen said this. Some people have a strong belief that the Rebbe will raise up and bring us redemption. It's what the Rebbe said. Just now we have to wait. I never believed this would happen. See, the Orthodox Jewish community believes in a Messiah who would die, who would raise again, and bring redemption. Uh, they just got the wrong one. They're picking someone that's not it. And uh, I would say, tag, get out of that and go find Jesus, because he's the only one qualified to be the Messiah, fully. Uh, and and Shearson... It's 19, it was died in 1994. It's 2020, according to my calendar. And he's still, body and grave, still there. So, so good question, question we need to ask as we explore this subject this morning is, are we zealous defenders making claims of some, uh, as some pagan religion would have about a resurrection or, uh, or of a demigod in human history, or, is, or are we talking of the God-man Jesus who has atoned for the sins of the world? See, that's what we want to really grasp, is Jesus is that Savior, that Messiah, that Lamb of God. And I think that's a, a needed thing to do that. Uh, and I'm going to say this, because uh, somebody will absolutely bring this up. Does being a follower of Jesus make us biased or brilliant? I'm going to say this. If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, you are brilliant. You are brilliant. And you should celebrate his resurrection. Not uh, Let's see, next week is April 12th. That's the day they have written as his resurrection. Um, I believe that's wrong because according to my calendar, Passover occurs Wednesday the 8th. That means he would have been put in a grave. He probably would have rose the 10th or 11th. So they're a day off. Um, that's just the calendar I'm looking at. But the point is, Jesus did raise from the dead, and can our account, and this is what I'm going to say, can the account we go through today hold up to scrutiny? That's what we're trying to do. Can it hold up to scrutiny? Do we, more, do we need more witnesses to this resurrection than what's in the New, what the New Testament writers have to say? Now, here's what you're going to have to do to discredit it. You've got to say the New Testament's a hoax. You've got to say there is no inspiration of scriptures. There is no such thing as the, as, the, as the Greek scriptures that were given to the apostles that teaches us not only about what the kingdom presentation was, but about the, the church age we're now in and how to live in this age and the coming age to come when Christ will rule and reign. 
If we, if we don't need the new, new covenant, the new testament, not the new covenant, we need the new covenant for Israel. But if we don't need the new testament and wash it out, then okay, all of our records are pretty gone, much gone. But if we also do that, there is no record of the tribe of Judah and their descendants. That's the only place you'll find it is in Matthew and Luke. So there's things, if you wipe that out, you're going to wipe out under other information. Um, and I'm going to say this. The early, not only did the New Testament writers write about it, the early church fathers talked about it, and, the, and, and we today celebrate it. The church, the true church of Christ, hinges on his resurrection. So these are important things we need to know before we even get into the timeline. And these are, these are foundational issues we need, to, we need to hold on to. We have the facts of Scripture. I'm going to say this again. My faith is based on the facts that Scripture is what it is and the truth and veracity of the, the God we believe in. So, uh, and, and you will hear the naysayers saying there is no outside supportive documentation to the resurrection uh, or, uh, and they'll look for some kind of evidence for it. In other words, they'll say, well, when Mary got to the grave and the tomb was open, nobody saw Jesus resurrect out of the tomb. Nobody saw his body raised. There's not a historical account to that. But they, but they did see him later. There was appearances of him and proven appearances. Um, we'll talk about those in the coming weeks. Uh, um, here's what I, I want us to focus on. I think this is a necessity. When we talk about the New Testament text, and I, and I believe just that is enough, because this is called an exercise of our faith. Do you believe? That's all it comes down to. Today we could say, He has risen. I'm going to say that I don't know how many times this morning. He has risen. And you can say in your living room, or your, don't, please don't be in a car with this, but you can say, uh, He has risen indeed. Because it's true. Uh, we serve a risen Savior. I love the song that says that, right? Uh, as, you know, Here's the interesting thing. When we say faith alone, in Scripture alone, in Christ alone, all three of those go together. We can't have one without the other. So if people, so when uh, there's people that believe in the Hebrew Scriptures, and they say Scripture alone, but they don't. They really don't. Uh, most Jewish people deal with the Talmud and writings outside of it and oral law. They don't just look at the text. And a lot of them even believe today that Genesis is a myth. I got issues with that. I think it's uh, what I would call factual because God told us what happened. And I believe those accounts. And it's, and it's again, we need to see that. Uh, now, here's what we do know. Because even the Talmud and, and, and the Quran and many of those writings that, that I find a, 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 a horrible, um, they all say that there's, some, there, there's a guy named Jesus that lived. Uh, they don't believe necessarily he's the Christ or the Messiah. They do believe he lived. Some of them call him a good man or a prophet or whatever. Uh, if he wasn't who he claimed to be, he's just a liar, so it doesn't matter. Uh, so, uh, um, so, but we have two choices. Even those people have two choices. He's either in the grave or he rose again. There's no, there's no middle ground to that. Uh, and we, and the question I can come out of this that I think we need to answer, and I will answer it first before we even get into the timeline, is the testimony of Scripture reliable? Can we say Scripture is reliable? Uh, 
And, and it's interesting, even agnostics, and there's an agnostic named Bart Ehrman, uh, wrote a lot of books about the Bible, believe it or not. He, he said Jesus existed. And it will tell you all about Jesus' existence and tell you what he did here when he was here during his first advent. But he doesn't believe in Jesus. Uh, so here's the reason why, and I'm going to give you uh, uh, at least eight reasons why, and then we're going to walk through the timeline. So hang on with me. So if you've got a pen or a piece of paper out, because here's what happens when I switch off this main screen of my face and my office. When I switch off it, it shuts the sound off. I don't know why. So um, I could go to laptop sound, and you can hear that, but it'll sound really distant. But um, for, for sake of whatever, here's the neat thing about YouTube. When I'm done and I hit end stream and Eric finalizes this thing and maybe I retitle this or whatever tweaking we need to do, you could rewatch this and press pause when you need to press pause, take the note down, watch it again, press pause, send it to your friends and put them on our YouTube uh, connection. We are still working, just so you know, now that I'm thinking about it. Real quick commercial, um, we are trying to get this on Facebook, so I don't know. If you're watching it now, you don't need Facebook. So, here's what we need to go through. Let me go through some reasons why we need to believe New Testament writers are uh, reliable. First of all, from preservation. Documents in the New Testament are the most well-preserved in all of history. There's not one or two documents. There's thousands of them. Now, we don't have the original writings. Um, I know many people have tried to look around for Paul and Silas's original documents or somebody who penned the letter, as Paul was maybe dictating it, uh, I know there's uh, at the end of Romans he says somebody helped him write this down, um, but we we have plenty of documentation, more documentation for this than any other book in human history. Um, Roman history Roman history documents have hundreds of years. Uh, Ro- uh, Roman history shows that hundreds of years after the fact. Uh, that only there's a handful of Roman history. So if you go to the Roman historians and look for their documentation on their histories, there's only a few few different documents on it. Uh, the New Testament documents are are within one generation from the events. So let's say, uh, for instance, we can just hypothetically say because we don't know exact date that Revelation was finished at 90 A.D. By 200 A.D. there were thousands of copies. Thousands of copies. Uh, I think that's a pretty good preservation of documents. Um, were all the documents, per- were all the copies perfect? Of course not. But if you take thousands of documents, pile them together, you'll find out they all, at some point, will agree. And maybe there's a word in there that may have changed just a little bit. Uh, you say tomato, I say tomato, kind of idea. But nothing that'll ever change any, any theology. That's it. So when you have a very, and we have textual variants that we may have to deal with at some point. There's a, there are a few of them in the Bible. Some are, there's a couple that are big and a couple that are small, but it's, it's just a textual variant. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change any, zero, listen, zero theology is changed by these variants. Second point, why we can trust the New Testament documents, they're eyewitnesses account. They're not some heresies that somebody's writing. Uh, we can read John 1.1. John himself claims to be an eyewitness of these things. We, he says, we are eyewitnesses. We, I don't know who the we is, but I'm assuming some, him and some of the other apostles, uh, some of those guys that traveled in his circle. Um, 
In Acts chapter 2, he, again, Peter claims that there are eyewitnesses to the resurrection, eyewitnesses to the crucifixion, eyewitnesses to the accounts that happened. Not only the disciples and apostles, but he's talking to the men of Judea. I, I think this is fascinating because Peter's first sermon was preached during the, when the crowd was assembled in Jerusalem for the high holy holidays of Passover. Hey, Passover is Wednesday. We'll be doing a small little Seder here, uh, and a, a, a walk through Seder on Wednesday morning at 9.18. So we're going to do that. But uh, Jesus, at that Passover season, Jewish males were mandated to come to Jerusalem. The place was packed. And they saw this. Third reason, uh, criteria of embarrassment. It's called criteria of embarrassment. Ancient accounts of heroes and demigods never show their blemishes. So if I wanted to talk to you about uh, Zeus or some god, I would say how wonderful, how magnificent, how uh, studly he looks or whatever. But I would never, ever tell of uh, their blemishes. Uh, the New Testament tells of the failure of the disciples. They flee at Jesus' death. They did not believe he's even risen. Thomas is quoted as being doubting Thomas because he didn't see Jesus resurrected when the other guys saw him. So everybody counts him as doubting Thomas, but the other ones have already seen him. He just says, I want to see it. Uh, and since he, didn't, it, since he didn't see it, and when he came later and saw it, we have a blessing, the Thomas blessing, because we're blessed because we haven't seen it either. And guess what? I believe. Um, and, and basically Thomas said, I won't even believe until I shove my fingers in your nail holes and jam my fist into your side. That's the language he was using. So, fourth reason we can believe the right reliability of Scripture is outside sources. Historians did not write about their times, but about earlier times when attestation of Jesus could be made. Later, non-believing sources teach of Jesus and his death. So, there, there are t- sources out there, many of them, that verify Jesus's. Uh, death and his life. Not many, his resurrection. I will tell you that, but because there's a problem with that, because many people, and that's why we have 1 Corinthians and why we're going to deal with it, because many people don't believe the body will be resurrected. And some people believe basically body goes in the grave, soul and spirit go wherever. And there's not a bodily resurrection. So uh, we'll have to deal with that. Uh, stay tuned two weeks from now. Um, Fifth reason is criminal death. A scandalous death of a criminal dying and, and starting a new religion based, based, on, what, uh, based on that is based on uh, starting a new religion based on himself is crazy because uh, it's unheard of. Who would, who, what criminal who would be a scandalous criminal of that time would start a new religion or what I would call uh, a completed religion? The Jews were looking for their Messiah and he completed it. Who would claim that? If he was, a, and, and would never happen. How about a virgin birth? Sixthly, virgin birth. That's not a man's invention. No other religion icon is virgin born, nor is said to be virgin born. Think of that. We have a doctrine called the virgin birth. Muhammad, not virgin born. Confucian, not virgin born. They have the sin nature of their father passed down to them. Seventh. If, if it's a myth, why did Jesus die for it? If it's just a myth and a hoax, why would Jesus die for it? What other reason did Jesus die for it? The, the accounts in the Gospels show Jesus is absolutely innocent of anything. Pilate, a, Rome, a Roman thug, basically said, 
I find no fault with him. And yet they still crucified him to pacify the people. And uh, why would Jesus die for that? And then think of this. Not only did Jesus die for it, but thousands upon thousands upon thousands of its later adherents also died for it. We call that a martyr's death. And many other people died for it. Today, we're, we're not suffering like that. We're suffering because maybe we got a two weeks, what has it gone, 17, 18 days of quarantine. We're suffering. No, we're not. No, we're not. And we're not suffering for Christ. We're just suffering because we're stuck indoors or stuck doing things we don't want to do. And, and it's a very a different time. And we don't know how to make the best of it. Um, so prayerfully, this is helping make the best of it. Uh, and I believe on the other side, when we come out, we'll be better for all of this. Thank God. The last point I want to bring up is the prophecy of the Hebrew Scriptures. Listen to this. The Hebrew Scriptures, you read through them, and you say, okay, what's the rest of the story? I finished Malachi. And I don't know what the rest of the story is. Well, you go into the New Testament, especially in uh, the opening book of Matthew, and it says, this was fulfilled. This scripture was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. Isaiah was fulfilled here. Jeremiah was fulfilled here. Uh, one after another, scripture is fulfilled. Um, he, even, he, even at the very beginning, was rejected by most of his people. He came unto his own, and his own rejected him. So when... The Jewish people were looking for their Messiah. They rejected him. And he would later be received by some Gentiles, not all Gentiles either. I've never done a mathematical formula to see how many Jews versus population and how many Gentiles versus population believe. But I believe the gospel came to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And um, listen, in 70 AD, the temple's destroyed and... Um, Things radically changed because all the records were gone except for our Bible and its account of things. Uh, and I, I think the determinative truth, if you want me to say something that will nail this down before we get into this uh, walkthrough of the resurrection events, the determinative truth is, is Jesus the prophesied Messiah? Can we say Jesus is the one he claimed to be and the scripture predicted? If we could say yes, everything else is just... Uh, what is it called? Icing on the cake. So uh, so I'm going to walk through these. I am not going to give verses for everything. Um, so I've got about, uh, don't worry about the amount of pages, but I'm going to walk through these. And here's what, here's what I'm going to say about this. Um, you, As I run through these, and you either take notes or later go back and write these down, this is not a perfect account. This is close as I can get it. I'm going to throw some things in, some ideas. I may throw a verse in here or there, but most of you are familiar enough with this account that you can go back and look at it. I'm just going to give you step-by-step, step, I believe, is the order of occurrences, and some of them may have been very close, concurrent, uh, overlapped maybe, um, but we're going to get close just to talk about the things. Now, here's why I'm doing this. First of all, Jesus rose from the dead. He was spotted. His appearance wasn't a one-time shot. His bodily resurrection was a verifiable account. Um, and we can talk about the historicity of it another time. We're going to try and talk about it with the pastor's uh, corner a little bit. Um, but I don't, I don't need something. His resurrection is factual. I don't know if we can say necessarily the historicity of it because nobody saw him physically rise. They saw him outside the tomb. 
And we'll talk about that another time. First of all, occurrence number one. I believe it was an earthquake that happened. And what the earth, as the earth quaked, an angel descended from heaven. Uh, and, and at the same time, uh, somehow the, the stone was rolled back and, and thrown out of the way. Uh, but here's the interesting thing, and I want you to write this down somewhere. The rolling back of the stone wasn't to let the body out, but it was proof that there was no body in. Kind of get what I'm saying? There's nothing in Scripture that says, oh, the stone rolled away and Jesus walked out. The stone rolled away, and all we know from that point on is people looked into the tomb, and it was empty. Second occurrence, very early resurrection morning. Um, some people will say this is Sunday. Uh, this is the third day. I don't care if it's Sunday, Monday, Thursday, whatever. Obviously, from church history, we all celebrate the Lord's Day on Sunday. Um, but the problem is, and I'm going to say this as nice as I can, we, we got bad calendars half the time. So, But very early the third day, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, uh, with her husband, Cloopus, leave Bethany during the time of the earthquake occurred. Clopas stays at John's house in Jerusalem. Salome joins, or Salome, Salome joins the two Marys, and the three proceed to the garden for the purpose of anointing the body. And the reason men didn't go, that was, at that time, basically woman's work. And I'm going to say something that may be come across contra- contradictory, because people will say, well, didn't Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus anoint the body? They did a basic anointing, so it would keep the smell down. These people were basically embalming him in these uh, uh, anointing and spices and things that they needed to get and procure. And that was women's work to uh, basically uh, prepare the body for final burial. Uh, and the other account, since I said it's early morning, just so you know, Mark says very early, uh, I believe, uh, uh, Matthew and John say uh, it was dark and it was dawn. You can see that the problem is to use terms. What, what is dawn? What is very early? What is dark? Uh, when does it this occur? So these are the terminologies that each one uses, a little variance in each one. Um, anyway, the women re- arrive at the tomb and they spot it was open. Mary runs back to John and Peter at John's house. So John's house was, if you re- remember the account, John probably lived very close to the uh, uh, temple, temple grounds, the court, uh, inside that. Many surmised John himself was from the tribe of Levi, some kind of priest, because he knew people in the court. Um, that's a whole different account. Third one is early morning when it's full daylight. Uh, still early morning, though. Joanna and Susanna set out from uh, the Hasmonean palace. Remember, they were somehow served Herod, her husbands, uh, served Herod. Uh, they set out from the Hasmonean palace and reached the garden. They lead Salome, Salome and the other Mary into the tomb where the angels make themselves visible and deliver their message. Now here's the thing we got to say. Sometimes the angels are visible, sometimes they're invisible, sometimes they're visible. But here they made themselves visible and they uh, delivered their message. Um, and basically it's, it's um, going back and telling the other disciples what's going on. Led by Joanna, they rush back into the city and eventually find their way to John's house. Inside the tomb. Number four, inside the tomb. Now, another thing I'm going to tell you something. What is an angel? Um, Don't get the cherubim, 
uh, Valentine arrow-piercing Cupid-looking thing. Uh, every every angel that appears that we have seen in the Bible appear has an appearance of a man. So they appear as a man. So someone will say there's a man at the tomb. Uh, some will say it's an angel. Uh, again, it's your perspective. Uh, again, were there two, then there was one. Well, there could be one you're talking to and another one standing off to the side. So again, these are variables. Anyway, inside the tomb they saw a young man. That's what Mark says. Matthew says an angel. The one on the right states... Uh, not to be amazed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. So again, they didn't see the resurrected Christ. They got a, 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 an announcement from this man, angel being, telling him um, he's not here. He's risen. See the place where they laid him. Luke says to, uh, two men uh, or, or angels, which is a historical account. The other two writers focus on the speaker. So here's the difference. Luke is a more historical drive to his book, and he says there was two. The other writers say there's one because they're only focused on the guy talking. So there's, that's where some of the uh, contradictory things come in. The other writers are just focusing on the guy speaking. Uh, and and they tell his disciples and Peter specifically uh, what's going on at that moment. That's who they're talking to. And that Jesus, and what they're saying is, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. So this is, uh, again, the appearance at the t- inside the tomb um, by the uh, disciples. Remember, these writers are not just witnesses, but also presenting what they believe is necessary to prove he lives. See, the focus of all four gospel writers is that Jesus lives. They are not answering the question of how many men are at the tomb um, or in the tomb or by outside the tomb. Uh, they're not saying exactly what they exactly what they what he said. They're given they give their descriptions of what they are are told about. Um, and, and I'm going to say this again: from the resurrection morning till at least 40 days later, this is a very complex moving event. So to say exactly this is what happened, that's really hard in and of itself. So we're on the fourth event. These angels, were, were uh, one was more prominent than the other. And we know that. Uh, there are times when angelic beings have made visitations in the, in the Old Testament and one spoke and the other one didn't. We know that uh, the angel of the Lord was with the three angelic beings with Abraham and he spoke. And we know that was the pre-incarnation, uh, pre-incarnate uh, Christ in that form of an uh, angel of the Lord. Um, and, and it says, uh, also in this fourth account, the great stone was rolled away, one sat on it, uh, till the guards left. They were invisible when the first woman arrived. They were visible when they delivered their message, and again invisible when Peter and John arrived uh, the first time, and then reappear when Mary Magdalene looked inside the tomb. So... Uh, these are the things going back and forth as these different people arrive at the tomb to verify different things that people are saying to them that the tomb is empty. Uh, our Lord has is not there. That's all they're saying. Uh, Mary will later say, I'm, I'm probably going to get to it and be repetitious. Where have you taken him? So she didn't think, where is he alive at? Where have you taken him to? Um, so now we're going to go from the tomb, uh, which I would call the fifth incident, 
The synopsis of what the angel said was, Don't be afraid. I know whom you are seeking. You're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one. Why do you seek the living among the dead? So he's giving a message that Jesus is alive. He's not going to be in the tomb. He's not here, for he has risen. And he has risen as he said he would rise. So the, the angelic being once again is reminding them of what Jesus had said. He said, come and see the place where they laid him. In other words, here's the tomb. This is where they laid him. We know this is verifiable. Uh, we know Joseph of Arimathea let Jesus use his tomb. We don't know how extravagant it might have been. We know he was very well to do. So it wasn't a little tiny hole in the, hole in the uh, wall somewhere. It was someplace probably extravagant that could have been uh, a big place for more than one at least person to be buried. Uh, so he might have had a place bought for his entire family. Uh, but he said, come and see where they've laid him. Remember how he talked to you when he was in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise, rise again. Go quickly, tell his disciples and Peter that he is raised from the dead and is going before you into Galilee. You will see him there as he said. So again, Going from the tomb where the women, these women left the tomb with, here's what the women left with. Listen, this is important. They were trembling. They were astonished. They had fear and great joy. Now, these seem to be contradictory terms. Well, let me explain to you. When they arrived there, they were fearful. When they were talking to this person, whoever it might be, there was astonishment and fear that was happening. But when the message was given and they turned to leave, I believe there's great joy, uh, I believe there was even fear when they were going there because they had they didn't know what happened. There was fear among the disciples because they thought if they crucified Christ, he'd be next. So there was great fear going on there uh, all the time until Christ had uh, calmed their fears. We noticed that from the conversation, they were even speechless. They didn't say anything. Their mission, though, was to go tell the apostles and Peter. The words uh, uh, they spoke were even unreal to them because whoever rose from the dead. So up until Jesus' resurrection, there's nobody that ever did this. So they're not looking for a bodily resurrection of Jesus, even though he told them time and time again. So let's talk about the first appearances of Jesus. Peter and John set out for the tomb running. This is the first time the disciples are, are at the tomb or heading for the tomb. I, I think it's kind of a wonderful, kind of comical picture to me. These two guys hightailing it to the tomb, probably from John's house, which is, uh, if you kind of get a picture, the tomb was probably north of John's house. John was in the city. They had to go outside the city to the, to the, to the tombs. And they, they were booking it. And we know from the account that John arrives first, stops, looks in and Peter blows by him and sees the linen clothes by themselves off to the side and no body. Other writers leave John out, but John fills in the story with vivid details. John enters and he believes Jesus... Uh, John later enters after Peter is gone and he believes Jesus is resurrected. John spots the napkin or head wrapping separate as rolled up, a detail only he would have. So some people say, well, it's contradictory. They only talk about a linen cloth and the other ones. They don't talk about a head wrapping. Well, guess what? Maybe John was just a little bit more observant and he was an eyewitness. He was the one that wrote the book and he's the one that ran in. I went in later, not ran in. He stopped and then went in. Um, 
So John is showing uh, that there is order in the tomb, that grave robbers wouldn't have left this order. Now think, if, he, if somebody was to steal the body, would they unwrap it and then take it? I think that's just weird if they did. That's, that's beyond my comprehension of what I want to say. But we know for a fact that the, the linen wrappings were there for proof that nobody stole the body. Jesus left the clothes. Um, and these visible pieces so that Jesus was set free, set free from the bonds of death. Just think of that. What a beautiful picture of him being set free from the bonds, bodily from the bonds of death. All the while this is happening, Mary Magdalene was not far behind them returning to the tomb. So as Peter and John return home, Mary Magdalene then runs into the angels in the tomb. And then, and then uh, as that, uh, well, and they're running back, the, the John, Peter and John are going back with the wonderful news that he has risen. He's not there. Um, but they still haven't seen him. Uh, but, but as they, uh, but as Mary's outside the tomb, she she runs into somebody. A gar- she assumes is the gardener in John chapter twenty, verses fourteen and fifteen, and she supposes him to be the gardener because who's going to be out there that early in the morning? Well, the gardener. She wasn't again. She wasn't looking for a resurrected Jesus. Many people say, why didn't she recognize him right then and there? Um, uh, and, and the only thing I can think of is she was very emotional. She, at this point, everything going back and forth to the tomb, she was probably crying. She, her, her eyes may have been a little swollen. It was the morning sun that was rising. All these variables come in that she didn't recognize him right off the bat. But when she does, she starts clinging to him. And um, Jesus tells her, to, he rebukes her to stop clinging to him, for he must first ascend to his father. Why did she think he was the gardener? Because that's who should have been there. Uh, he might, she might even have thought he was the one that rolled away the stone. Now, I don't think it's possible, because from the size the stone might have been, I don't think it was something one person could have physically have done. So uh, that's just something to think about. The, the other women then arrive. Mary Magdalene returns from the tomb to John's house in Jerusalem uh, to find a group of excited women and confused and skeptical men. The women's mission still unfulfilled because they still have to find the body and uh, encase it in spices. Uh, are, so their mission is still unfulfilled. And the nine disciples at this point still don't know what happened. So we have nine disciples. Well, let's see. this. Yeah, nine disciples. Because Peter and John know what's going on. The other nine are not there. And the twelfth one was... Uh, we don't know when he went out and hung himself, but it was probably during this time period. Um, I'm not putting in this, putting this in there. I don't care. It's not part of this. So the probable interlude, what happens with this time period, is uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Salome, uh, Salome, go to Bethany to inform the nine with the good news, where they meet Jesus, instructing them to tell their brethren. Okay. Uh, the second part that's going on at the same time, Clopas and his companion go in the opposite direction. So here's what's going on. Um, they're probably heading to Bethany, which is south of Jerusalem. They're heading to Bethany to tell the other disciples where they probably were hanging out for safety. Bethany was probably two miles south of Jerusalem. 
And they were going there. And then we see two uh, more disciples going north to the road to Emmaus. And they met Jesus there for a midday meal. Um, and, and also going on, coinciding with this, is probably the Roman soldiers are reporting to the chief priests what happened. So we got all bunch of things going on, probably at the same time. And it's interesting, um, with the two disciples, one's name, Clopas, uh, it could be the same Cleopas, that's the, the husband of one of the women, and I believe it is, even though it's a different spelling, but I believe it is. Uh, again, uh, we're dealing with a letter. That's all we're dealing with. Uh, and there is no other guy named in the scriptures other than this one gentleman. And who is the second disciple on this road to Emmaus? And I believe, and remember, disciples just a learner. At this point, they're not apostles. Uh, and I don't think it was one of the eleven. Those those were being reported to, which would be which would would have been in, uh, interesting if the women went to go tell the nine. And one of one of the women's husbands was Cleopas, and they didn't tell him, and he took off. Um, so that's kind of what we're what I'm looking at. Uh, so anyway, uh, as we see this, this, the second disciple was probably Luke himself. That's a that's a supposition I'm going on. That was probably Luke himself. And next week when we discuss it, I'll, I'll talk to you about that. Um, so that's where we'll leave that off. Afternoonish, by the time Jesus is with his disciples, and uh, I'm sorry, with Jesus with these two disciples for a midday meal, the other ones are other things are going on. So in the afternoon, after that, nine disciples, nine apostles, less Thomas come in from Bethany and gather in the upper room. Cleopas and his companion Luke, companion maybe Luke, return from Emmaus and join them. Jesus appears. Amaus was probably Luke's... Oh, the reason I, I think it was Luke is because Amaus is an interesting thing. It's known for its warm springs, and it's a village where, where it was... Uh, and the village had a possibility that uh, it, was, it was given a reputation as a place of healing. So, because of the warm springs, and everybody loves to go to Arkansas for the hot springs and things like that. That's why they named the city after it. So, they go to the hot springs and get healing. It would be a, a wonderful place to set up a doctor's office, and that's why I believe Luke himself is from that city. Um, but again, minor point, not major point. Um, the fourth appearance is to Peter uh, when the Emmaus II returned to Jerusalem and found I found the clever, uh, the um, eleven, the eleven uh, gathered together. They re- the report was the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. So he'd already appeared. I guess the Lord, when he was there, talked to them and said, you know, we, he'd already seen Peter. And then they give their report, seeing the Lord on the on the uh, way to Emmaus. Peter refers to this, I believe, in First Corinthians 15. Where he's, where I mean, Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, "And he appeared to Peter." So we'll deal with that again, a couple weeks. When or where or what occurred, we do not know. Only that his appearing was to Peter at that point. So that's really not a listed thing. So I couldn't put that in where that had occurred. So note, thus far, Jesus never appears to any unbeliever. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus never makes a resurrection appearance to an unbeliever and says. Here I am, believe in me. As a matter of fact, when he's with the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus, he explains to them in Scripture, and we'll deal with this next week, who he is. He never says, here I am. So, uh, 
that they were just believers, and guess what? These believers were not in, in a state of eager expectation for his resurrection, and were not quickly to believe that it was even him. So we got a lot of things going on as we do this. <clears throat> Fifth appearance was to the eleven. Um, this is the apostolic collective body. They, they were called the twelve. They would always be titled the twelve. And at this point, Judas is gone. And at this point, also, Thomas isn't there. Uh, and it's probably the first day of the week. Um, he, where Basically, again, he'll say, um, he showed them his hands and his feet to prove who he was. <clears throat> I believe this is the First Corinthians 15.5 account where he says he appeared to the twelve. Uh, even though two of them were absent, Judas was absent and Thomas were absent. Uh, this body was his old body with the wounds of the cross. His, it was his old. It was a body, a physical body with the wounds of the cross. Yet he was transformed in some manner because he could pass through doors and he defeated the bounds of gravity. Yet he still ate. So uh, I don't know what our resurrected body will look like. I'll kind of tell you that when we go through First Corinthians 15. So. You have to wait a couple of weeks. The second appearance to the twelve, or the sixth appearance overall, was during the week of unleavened bread. John picks up where Luke seems to stop in John 20, verses 24 through 29. The eleven remained in Jerusalem for eight days uh, before returning to Galilee. Uh, again, the reason for that is the pilgrim uh, pilgrimage made to Jerusalem uh, during the High Holy Holidays. They normally stayed in the city between six to ten days, depending on who they were and what they were doing there, and maybe visiting family. Um, Thomas enters the scene with the other ten. The, th- the theme of Thomas was, I will not believe. So Thomas's theme of this section, when, we, when you go to study this, he said, I will not believe. The Lord rebounds with a blessing to those who have seen and yet believe. Um, so... Thomas said, I will not believe yet as soon as Jesus spoke. Thomas didn't do anything. Let me rephrase that and, well, recount this. He said he would want to drive his fist through his uh, spear side, the hole in his side, and his fingers through the nail holes. But he never did. The second Jesus spoke, Thomas delivered a deciding statement. He said, my Lord and my God. What a fantastic, uh, again, a fantastic thing. Uh, the third appearance then occurs by the lake of Tiberias. I believe this is where 1 Corinthians 15, 6 comes in. Uh, the Passover being complete and having uh, an eight, spent eight days within walking distance of Golgotha and all of Joseph's, and of Joseph's empty tomb. That's where Jesus mainly stayed. Now he's at the Sea of Tiberias. And I just believe this is when the 500 see him. It's either here at this particular time when he talks about, Peter, do you love me incident, or it's uh, at his ascension. So I'm not sure which one that would be. But somewhere the 500 came in uh, to that. Uh, Seven actually take a boat during this time. Seven took a boat out to go fish on a fishing expedition, which proved to be a fruitless uh fruitless hobby i guess at that point it was a hobby i don't know if they were some people say and venturing to say they were going back to their original duties because because i don't know what they were doing Uh, scripture doesn't say but when they do come in they get a haul of fish jesus is already cooking breakfast on the shore thus this is the third revelation of jesus uh, uh, to his disciples 
And here again, he, he, he reiterates to them the life of discipleship, uh, the life of abiding in him, the life of, count, uh, again, counting on him to do that, um, to, to, to lead them, to be their authority where they go, and to instruct them as they go. Um, and we're given a number of those in the commission, especially in Matthew 28, to his disciples, what to do, to go into all the nations. Uh, we're not given, so you know, we're not given that mandate, um, even though we should be having churches in every nation, reaching people for the lost. But uh, again, uh, now, so far, let's, re- let's refresh our memories for a second. Every one of these appearances, and I believe even the 500, uh, and, I, and are all dealing with believers, and those 500 had their curiosity arisen, and think about it. What would it believe? What would it do? No, let me say it this way. What would it take to corral 500 believers to see the Lord Jesus Christ? We're not told, but I'm going to say this. This great assembly would come together because word had spread that he had risen and that all these appearances were again going out rapidly throughout the community saying we have uh, seen the risen Lord. Um, but this great great assembly, this 500, was a, was a base for the operation of getting the message to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And again, this was not some great hallucination or drunken uh, f- festival at that time. This is what had happened. Um, I just want to go through uh, two more real quick, well, three more quick incidents uh, briefly. He appeared to James. James is his half-brother, uh, and this is from 1 Corinthians 6. 15.7. We'll get into it deeper when we go to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, he, he appeared uh, to his half-brother, uh, assuming to be one of a personal nature. Uh, we know from the fact that James may or may not have been a believer until he saw the resurrected Christ. So this may have been the first unbeliever he came to. Um, not sure, because there's not a whole lot given to us except 1 Corinthians 15.7. We know from, from Acts 1.14... All his brothers were active in this group of young believers, uh, and they were pr- and they were praying with those believers. So, what happened between the sighting of Jesus with James and later? I don't know. L- later, we will see that James will pen the book, the Epistle of James, where he calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. So, whether he was a believer or not before or after, I'm not sure. Scripture doesn't r- tell, um, but we know we do know that when Jesus had his earthly ministry. His, his brothers were not for a time. So, um, when that happened, I don't know. And uh, then he appeared to all the, the, the apostles by the sea. Again, this is uh, Acts 1, 1 through 14, where they asked the question about, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? Um, and, and, and I also believe it's Luke 24, 44 through 53. And uh, then, it, then he appeared to the apostle Paul, and we'll deal with that again when we go to 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul was later. Uh, we don't know how much later, but he did physically appear to Paul on the road to Damascus. So that's that's pretty much for appearings. I want to I want to write to, I want to read this fantastic paragraph I read out of a, a book on the resurrection. So uh, and then I'm going to go through a few more uh, quick points and we'll conclude. So the disciples returned to the city in great joy knowing that God had given them irrefutable proofs of the Lord's resurrection. Their doubts were resolved. They knew who he was, their Lord and their God. 
They now knew their task to make him known throughout the world. They now know the world's great hope to see him return and reign in glory over a creation transformed by the power which brought him resurrection. I think it's fantastic. Um, uh, now, when Paul reaccounts some issues in, in Acts 26, um, he includes the resurrection in his accounts that he gives to King Agrippa. And we know from Acts that there are many proofs of his resurrection. We know that some ate with him. We know that some talked with him. So he was bodily resurrected. It wasn't a hologram. It wasn't a spirit. It was a physical body. Okay, so, so far, here's what we've done. This timeline addresses about 165 verses. It does not answer or cover all the questions. Yet it is significant that this timeline be used as you as a, by you as a further study. Because nothing replaces your interaction with the Word of God. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I'm going to give you seven concluding points that we can agree with. And I think this is a necessity as we close this class. Uh, I thank all of you so far for, for staying hanging in there. We've had a pretty good group hanging in the whole time. Uh, I know a few people could not get on because they went to the wrong link uh, because I couldn't get it to work. So uh, prayerfully, those will tune in later and re-watch it. So here's what I want. Six concluding thoughts that all the Gospels can agree on. First of all, Jesus died and was placed in a tomb. Complete evidence that Jesus died even from the Romans, Romans, even from uh, Josephus, who was a historian, that Jesus died and was placed into a tomb. Uh, while we know also that that tomb was later found empty. That's all we know. Secondly, the disciples were not prepared for his death. Not one disciple fully understood anything about his death and were fear of, had a fear that they would be next. Also along with that, they were overwhelmed with confusion, not only at his death, but at his resurrection. Thirdly, the tomb was found the third day, as he said, empty. So the tomb was empty. Fourth, the empty tomb was not itself proof of the resurrection, because Mary herself thought the body was stolen. Fifthly, the disciples encountered certain experiences which they took to be appearances of Jesus risen from the dead. In the last analysis, it does not matter where or to whom these appearances occurred, because, but they did occur. That's all. We're not, we're not worried about the order. We're not worried about to whom um, and, and to how many, we're, we're, but that they occurred. So, And the Bible is the, is the written record of, of those occurrences. Sixthly, we must include another important historical fact. Contemporary Judaism had no concept of a dying and rising Messiah outside of Jesus' own teaching on the subject, and yet later carry it over to every Messiah. They, they claim to be Messiah after Jesus. And there's no real evidence in the Old Testament of a third-day resurrection, or any resurrection. There's a hint to it, but you can't, you'd have to compile a lot of scriptures and put them together to say, oh yeah, that's Messiah. Um, we know it is, because we'll look back, and Jesus has died, buried, and rose again, and we could look back at those scriptures and plug them in. But prior to that, they couldn't do that. What is what is Job saying when he says, My Redeemer liveth? What does that mean? Well, we could say, My Redeemer liveth. And last point, another historical fact. 
as the disciples proclaimed there was a resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem. They were near where he had been buried. There was constant conversation in that area. They didn't go, they didn't uh, get the message, see him, and take off to Spain or take off to China or America. They stayed right there where it could have been refuted. No one refutes his resurrection, and this is where the gospel propagated. In Acts chapter 1, it says, go to Jerusalem, that's where it happened, Judea, which is the outside part of it, Samaria, which is just north, and then go to the other parts of the world. If anybody wanted to refute this, they had plenty of time to refute it, and no refuta- uh, uh, any, any rebuttal was ever brought up anywhere. Nothing is found in any historical record that says, hey, Jesus didn't... Raise again, we got a body. Well, Jesus didn't raise again because there's proof that he's dead. Well, there's proof that he's alive because my Savior lives. Um, And I think that's a wonderful place to close this morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's close in prayer. Uh, Father God, we thank you for this time as we've spent uh, quite a bit of time going through an analysis of the resurrection the impact it made on those first observers, the, uh, the women that came to the tomb, the disciples that were involved. I'm sure Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus got a report, the two disciples on the road to Maus, later on the 500. There's plenty of witnesses. There's plenty of witnesses who saw him bodily resurrected, and then he ascended up to heaven, and one day soon we're waiting for his return. And that we, Lord, we pray that it's soon and any day soon. In Jesus' name, amen. I uh, pray again, all of you stay well and safe. Uh, Pay attention, you can, to the government standards. We want this to end fast. Be in prayer. Prayer is wonderful. Pray that the doctors come up with something and the health care workers stay safe to deal with this. I believe they're looking at April 15th as being not only tax day, but the uh, the day that it's the highest crisis day. So be in prayer. Again, I thank you for uh, being part of this. Uh, Stay tuned for... uh, messages on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. God bless. Grace and peace. I had to shut down the original stream. I did stream it, and it's up. I just ended. Wow, I had 27 at one point. I know, now you had 30. You had like 30. Well, I have 53 playbacks and 30 people.